Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, uh, in the scriptures to Psalm 75. If you're using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that on page 487. We're looking this morning at Psalm 75. Beloved saints, this is God's word to us this morning. Uh, Let us listen, pay attention, and receive God's word. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keeps steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of Yahweh there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drink it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray that he'd be pleased. Uh, to meet us in his word and speak to us from it this morning. Lord Jesus, you know the darkness of our minds and our hearts. You know our fears, our doubts. Flood that darkness with the light of your grace and your peace. Open our minds to your truth. Grant us hope. Grant us faith. Increase our understanding. Allow us to receive you through your word. Let your love shine through the pages of your scripture. May your spirit be with us as we read and hear. May he grant that we might delight in all that we encounter there, we ask. In Jesus' most precious of names, amen. You may be seated. It's popular these days uh, to be a moderate no one wants to be thought of as an extremist or a, a zealot. They want to be thought of as a middle-of-the-roader, balanced. And that often gets expressed in how people talk about God and religion. You'll hear people say things like, I'm not a particularly religious person. I, I think it's great for some, as long as they aren't fanatical or anything. To each their own, it's just not for me. In other words, what they're saying is they are indifferent to God, as if that were a virtue. Now, to be sure, there are times when indifference is a good thing. If you think every little detail in life is worth arguing about, you are going to be a very lonely person. But there are times when indifference is not a good thing, but it's an absolute scandal. No wife would think it was a virtuous thing to hear her husband say, 
I think you're fine. I just don't want to be extreme in my feelings toward you. We could stay married or, you know, whatever. I'm just a moderate. Indifference, when devotion is due, is betrayal. And here's the thing. Every single creature owes devotion to its creator. And so indifference towards God is rebellion. It's it's appalling. Anything shy of absolute love and delight in God is wrong. But the simple reality is we easily forget about God. Even those of us. Let's not talk about everyone out there. Let's talk about ourselves for a minute. We who claim devotion to God easily forget about God. We easily find fault with God. We blame him. We judge him. And we grow impatient with him. These are the issues that lie at the heart of Psalm 75 and what it's addressing. And as we look at it for the next few minutes, we want to wrestle with what drives us to grow impatient with God. And and if possible, we'd like to learn to see the beauty in God's patience. And the hope is that through this, we might learn not to judge God, not to be indifferent toward him, but to delight in him and to praise him. That's really our goal. And as we look at the psalm, my, my main point could be summed up like this. And if it sounds like I'm stealing it from someone, uh, his name's Peter. But it goes something like this. God is not slow in keeping his promises, but he's patient in order to give sinners time to repent. God is not slow in keeping his promises. He's patient in order to give sinners time to repent. That's what we're going to look at in Psalm 75. Uh, It's a psalm that opens with praise. You can look at the beginning there. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks. Your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. The psalm closes with praise. I will declare it forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob, verse 9. Praise is the natural response of a heart that delights itself in God. Uh, Yeah, it's it's true. Praise can be forced. I think we all know what that's like. Out of guilt and obligation, we, we show up. We sing songs. We confess that God is good. It can be forced. We can do it out of obligation. But when we believe that God is good, when we are humbled by his goodness, when we're astounded by God's grace, then praise doesn't need to be forced. It it just needs to be unleashed. It's like young love. It's harder to suppress it than to give it expression. When praise does not come easily to our lips, when it has to be forced, the reason is because we're not delighting in God. And what is it that keeps us from delighting in God? What is it that would keep that from being our natural inclination? All the reasons you could come up with will boil down to this. We don't delight in God when we find fault with him. 
when we judge him, when we think he's done something wrong, when we think he's failed, when we think he is not doing what a good God would do, a God worthy of our praise. And what is it that we often find fault with God for doing? What is it that bothers us about him the most? I think it's timing. Nothing tries our faith like waiting. We're sick, and we want to be healed now. We want a job, and every day we don't find one feels like a knife in the back. Lord, don't you love me? We want to get married, pregnant, and each passing month or year is interpreted as a lack of God's love for us. We suffer ridicule, isolation, mistreatment, and we start to believe that because relief has not yet come, it never will. And we know, we know that God has shown us love in the past, but it's as if we wonder, yes, God, but what have you done for me lately? Whether we say that out loud or it's, it's just what we think in our heart, the conclusion is always the same. God has failed me in some way by making me wait. We regularly find fault with God for his timing. I think it's one of humanity's greatest complaints. And it is hard to praise a God with whom you find fault. So what is it that leads us to find fault with God? to question his timing? What is it that leads us to think that our timing is better than his? What is it that drives us to think that we are better, more loving, fairer, or kinder than the God who made us? I don't know any other word for it but arrogance. Now, there's arrogance that's easy to spot. But arrogance can wear many masks, and some of those masks are harder to identify than others. We're, we easily pick out the person who walks around, is cocky, judges everyone, always thinks themselves better than others. We find those people intolerable. We see their arrogance for what it is. It's easy to identify, and we despise it. But I think there are more subtle versions and, to be honest, more dangerous versions and forms. If it's arrogant to always find fault with other sinners and think that your ways are always better, what does it say when you find fault with God and think your ways are better? And yes, that includes finding fault with God's timing. If you think that your sense of timing is better than God's. You are finding fault with him. You're judging him. You're saying your ways are better. And everything God does, he does for a reason. Everything he does is good and it is perfect. And when we find fault with him, we are declaring ourselves to be wiser than he is, kinder than he is, or better than he is. 
And that is arrogance. There's just no other way to put it. Now, I don't say this as an outsider dumbfounded by all those people who think their ways are better than God's. I say it to my own shame as one who has far too many times led the charge in questioning God's wisdom, his timing, and his goodness. Look at verse 2. God declares, at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. There's a day coming when God will set all things right and he will judge all wickedness. Every evil deed ever committed will be addressed. Every careless word will be called to account. Every lie will be exposed for what it is. That day has been set. And it will not come one minute or one second late. And it will not come one minute or one second early. God has marked it on his calendar in ink. And this is what makes us crazy sometimes. When God makes us wait for what we want. This is what God declared after the flood. He said he would not destroy the earth again until the end. And until that day, seasons and weeks and years would come and go. They would continue. And during that thing, that time, many things will go unaddressed. Many of our desires will go unanswered. A few will be answered, but seldom on our timetable. And over the years, the theologians have come to call this common grace. You, you might wonder why we always pray for that regularly in the, in the, the prayer of the church. Lord, we, we pray for your common grace blessings. We did that today. Common grace is God's Kindness is forbearance on all creation. Blessings shown to everyone regardless of whether they follow him or not. It's, it's his stay of execution. It's not a denial of his justice. It's a delay of it. And during this time, people who follow false gods will walk about freely. We all benefit from the same rain, the same sun. There's no promise that those who follow the true God will be more successful and prosperous than those who don't. And during this time, God tells us that he is actively restraining our sin from bringing total havoc. Look at verse 3. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it's I who keep steady its pillars. We don't use pillars an awful lot. We have one in the back. Pillars keep things up. When they are knocked down, things fall. This is what Samson did, remember? He's in that house at the end. Puts his hands on the pillars and he knocks them down and brings the whole house down. God's saying that's what creation is like. If it was up to you, you'd knock every pillar down and creation would disappear. I'm the one keeping the pillars from falling apart. If he had left it to us, the world would have come crashing down long ago. The reason we're still alive is because God has kept creation from crumbling. Every breath we take is because of God's patience. Maybe we could put it this way. What if God did answer our prayers? What if we sat there exasperated, 
finding fault with God, finding fault with his ways, challenging his goodness. And then we prayed something like this, Lord, please judge the wicked and the arrogant. Because when he does, according to verse 2, he will do so with absolute equity. That means absolute justice, no partiality, no favoritism, and his standard is perfection. Is that really what we want? Would we not be calling down fire on our own heads? Is that not utter foolishness, absolute arrogance? So what should we do? What are we to do then? God doesn't leave us wondering. He he answers that question in verses 4 and 5. Most psalms are addressed to God. Uh, But Psalm 75 is is different. Much of it is uh, God's instruction to us. It's not that all psalms aren't instructive, but this one has direct speech from God for us to hear. And what does he say? He says, stop boasting. Lift up your horn or stop lifting up your horn and speaking with haughtiness or arrogance. Horns in the ancient world, I know we don't understand this language readily, but uh, in the Bible, horns are symbols of power, probably coming from animals who use their horns to, to gain dominance and power. He's saying, stop trying to control everything, including me. Stop thinking yourself better than everyone else, including me. He's saying, Turn from your sin. Repent. That's what we're supposed to be doing while we await that day appointed for judgment. In fact, the Bible tells us that this is exactly why God is delaying judgment. Uh, My main point sentence this morning is really stolen from Peter. I don't think he minds. Uh, 2 Peter 3.9, he says this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's not slow. He's patient. And for your benefit, Paul says something similar in Romans. He says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is slow or or patient in setting all things right precisely to give people time to turn to him in humble repentance. But how can repentance give us hope? Even if we are able to stop our arrogance, it doesn't erase past sins. Admitting that you're wicked doesn't make you good. We have all accused God of failure for failing to do our will. We've all rebelled against our creator. Indifference is one of the greatest acts of rebellion we could commit. Discarding God, forgetting about him, finding fault with him is is worse. We're all arrogant. We've all raised our horns and tried to control God. We've, We've all spoken with arrogant or haughty necks. And in God's hand, we're told, is a foaming cup of wrath ready to be drunk down to the dregs. That's what we deserve. Now we suddenly don't want that appointed time to come. Because who can stand? What hope is there? 
for sinners when he comes in judgment. Because he said he will judge with equity, with absolute justice, and only the righteous will survive. And the Bible is, is abundantly clear, and we know it in our hearts, there is none righteous. Not one. So what hope is there? Can the unrighteous be made righteous? Is there any way to avoid that foaming cup of wrath? There's one, and there's only one way. Look at verses 6 and 7. God says that there is help in no other except him, not to the east, not to the west, not from the wilderness. He alone can offer help. He alone can offer salvation. But we have to ask, how does he do that? How can, how can the God who says he's perfectly just offer help to those who aren't? How can God who is perfectly fair, perfectly righteous, offers salvation to sinners. How can you be saved from drinking that cup of wrath that you deserve? Someone else would have to drink it for you. On Jesus' last night with his disciples, one of his most trusted friends who had his own agenda, got frustrated and impatient and judged him and betrayed him. Judas betrayed his Lord for a mere 30 pieces of silver. And as he led the Roman soldiers into the garden where Jesus and his disciples were, Peter drew his sword in an attempt to protect Jesus. Now, while that gesture may seem well-intended and admirable and noble, consider the foolishness of thinking that Jesus needed Peter's help rather than the other way around. It's okay, Jesus. I'm nearby. Had Peter not read Psalm 75? Did he think that God needed his help? Did he not realize that he was the one in need of saving? And do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? He said, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, it's okay. I've come to drink the foaming cup of wrath to save you. Don't try to save my life. I'm offering it freely in your place. This is how God saves sinners. This is how he makes the unrighteous righteous. He takes their sins and all it deserves, and he drinks it down to the dregs, every last drop. And in exchange, he gives them his perfect righteousness. This is what happens when we acknowledge our arrogance and we repent. He takes away our sin and he gives us his obedience. It's as if we had never sinned, but always and at every point obeyed all his commands. So that when God shows up on that appointed day and he judges with equity, 
Those who have turned to him for salvation will be judged as if they were perfectly righteous. And they will be exalted and lifted high. They will inherit all the beauty and the majesty of heaven. And what has made all that possible? It's God's patience. That he didn't come and set all things right the second they went sideways. It's the fact that God has not rushed to judgment but but been patient toward us, not wishing that we would perish in our sins. What some people count as slowness is really kindness. It's not a scandal. It's beautiful. And that should lead us to praise God. It should lead us to adoration, to thanksgiving. If we understand what causes God to be slow in setting all things right, we would not be angry. We would not be impatient. We would not be indifferent. We would be overwhelmed with gratitude. And we would praise him. And we would declare his goodness. And we would delight in his patience. If worship is hard, if singing praises isn't your natural inclination, if you're not filled with gratitude that must find expression in in declaring his goodness, consider whether it might be because you're finding fault with God. Whether you might be impatient with him, whether you might be radically misjudging the situation. Now, of course, it's easy to say, well, well, Psalm 75 is talking about the last day. I'm not trying to rush that. It's other things that I don't understand why God is slow in resolving, helping me find a job, problems with my family, my illness. Surely those could be resolved without, you know, jeopardizing the salvation of all people. It's the same God. And he's patient because his patience always accomplishes good in our lives. When he makes us wait for the little things, we learn to trust him in the big things. When we must wait for relief, we learn to stop boasting and we seek help from the only place where it can be truly found because what happens when you get everything right when you want it? Does it lead to humility (laughs) or arrogance? You see, it's in waiting that we learn to depend upon God. It's there we find salvation. Is it any wonder then that as Jesus prepared to depart this world, that he left us with a visual reminder of why he came? On that last night, just before uh, he told Peter that he had come to drink the cup of wrath, he shared a cup of wine with his disciples and said that it would be uh, a perpetual reminder of his, of his death. It would be a reminder of what we deserve for our sin and the only way to escape that wrath by trusting Jesus for our salvation, that he would drink the cup of wrath for us. It's amazing how something so normal and even morose 
can be so beautiful when it's seen correctly. Cup of wine, nothing special. A picture of blood, a little gross. And yet a reminder that in his death, he drank the cup of wrath for us. Beautiful. Is it then not a perfect reflection of God's patience? Once we see it correctly, we recognize it for how beautiful it is. And it produces gratitude within us, and it leads us to praise the God who is near to us and saves us. So I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive uh, this gift from our God's hand this morning. And please join me in prayer. Our gracious God, you are good, you are kind, you are loving, and you are patient. And we confess that we are far too quick to find fault with you. We fail to ask what you might be teaching us or or how your patience might be for our good. Forgive us. Forgive our foolish imprudence. And replace our folly with wisdom. Teach us to see your grace in your patience, to love you in your delay, and to teach us to see that all you do is for our good. Teach our hearts to delight in your goodness and to well up in praise, to sing because we cannot remain silent, to worship because we can do no other. And one day, at your appointed time, set all things right. Until then, we wait in faith. Amen.